Welcome to Kurt Vonnegut's, the podcast dedicated to the life and works and ongoing things of Kurt Vonnegut because he's the greatest author of all time. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Michael Swain. Vonna, hey, Vonna, ho, Vonna, how's it, Vonna, hanging? <laughs> so good to be back. That is Vana personal. I share it with my Vana doctor, <laughs> who handles all my Vana um, needs physically. Uh, <laughs> please turn your head to the left and Vana cough. <laughs> Great to see you, Alex. Great to be here. Always good to have a new excuse yeah. to talk Vonnegut. Short of, it would be cool if they unearthed like a new Vonnegut novel. That would be swell. But yeah. <laughs> short of that, we found something. We found something to discuss. <laughs> yeah, I guess like brief programming note right away. So thank you folks for the like kind notes and comments oh and everything goodness, else yes. on the episode we did about Slaughterhouse Five graphic novel. On that, we said, hey, we're going to do an episode about Tom Roston's book uh, about like it, it's a nonfiction book about Kurt Vonnegut's war experiences. And many people said, that sounds great. Also, there is this documentary. Could you please cover that? So we're covering that with this, and then we'll be back one additional time at least uh, to do that Tom Roston book later. That's right. So that's what's yeah, happening. We'll do both. You probably figured it out from the title too, but uh, that's what's happening. You have not been unstuck in time. This is the next <laughs> episode of Vana Guys. Yeah, <laughs> that is correct. And uh, and yeah, so we are very excited to cover this documentary. That was a great tip from many of you, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a documentary called Kurt Vonnegut Unstuck in Time. That uh, we've both watched and enjoyed, and which we will spoil, of course, because that's how you talk about it. Right. And honestly, if you're a longtime Vana Guys listener, it hit a lot of the beats. Not that this is bad, but I was like, ah, yes, I knew that about Kurt Vonnegut because we did this whole podcast about it. So it's not <laughs> like there were any, you know, earth shattering surprises, but still delightful, delightful project. And as we'll find out, I agree, many years in the making, something like 40 years in the making, which is very cool. Yeah, let's and let's find that out. We can get into the first segment of the show, and it's called Franken Time. New sounds, new sounds are happening. New musics are happening. Uh, it's. Uh, did you lose yeah, the this... old sound files? Did we swap those I out? I did, <laughs> including the intro music and outro music. Yeah, so it's just all new sound Great. effects. It's just losing drives in apartment and city moves. Oh yeah, that's all it is. Yeah, <laughs> people occasionally reach out and will ask for a really, really old sketch, and I'll have to let them know. That is wiped from the face of the internet. <laughs> that does not exist. Oh. You know, it happens. <laughs> Time makes fools of us all. Yeah, I hope there's not too much of a tangent. I was talking about my old work for jest.com, which was a website right. that was like a college humor mm-hmm. sister thing. And that whole website's gone. Oof. But the other day, somebody asked me about like, yeah, did you say you did stuff about Mitt Romney? And I was like, yes, I worked there in 2012. And that was all we did was Mitt Romney. And now the site is gone. And kind of so is Mitt. He's just Those like a forgotten Romney senator now. jokes that will yeah. never tarnish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mine was a Billy Bob Thornton video. And I'm like, yeah, we don't. I guess he's still in stuff, but I don't think about him that often. <laughs> All right, back to Vonnegut. Back to Vonnegut. Yeah, back to back to the the guy who's always around. Mm-hmm. And this this is a segment name we've used before because it's great for like any piece. We usually used it for Vonnegut collections compilations, but Frankentime is how did this come together? Right? Because it's mm-hmm. it's not just a straight up novel by Kurt Vonnegut that explains itself. How did we get this documentary? And as as you said, Michael, this is basically 40 years of work and living, especially by the co-director Robert B. Whitey. Today I learned it's pronounced Whitey. And (laughs) Bo Conan, we hear Vonnegut himself 
Yeah, boy. Sabocconin. And that is not what I thought that word was said like. So I guess there are earth-shaking surprises in this. Yeah, I think I said Bokanon forever. Mm-hmm. And then, and uh, yeah, now we know. Great. And he calls it Kotz Crodley. Sorry, I fumbled that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it includes... Uh, well, I'm sure you have more robust notes about how specifically it came together, but it really is appropriate that's called Frankentime because this thing is stitched together from so many uh home video from the Vonnegut's themselves so found footage yeah. repeated shoots over the years that Whitey did interviewing himself interviewing Kurt Vonnegut interviewing family members uh and of course appearances and speeches by Vonnegut it's really uh, a hodgepodge of different sources it's kind of amazing how well, how I mean, I guess you'd expect it after Curb Your Enthusiasm and all the success Whitey's had, but how uh, streamlined and sensible it is, given that there's so much material. I can't imagine what it was like to edit it down to this yeah. piece, because he must have had boxes and boxes and boxes. Yeah, because it comes in a little over two hours, mm-hmm. and maybe that's long for some documentaries but that's not long for this like you see you see within the film and can figure out from how it came together that yeah he's got just so much physical media of starting to film Kurt Vonnegut living and doing stuff uh, after reaching out to him in 1982 and then beginning to film in 1988 and pretty much continuing to get footage it seems like from 1988 until before Vonnegut's death in 2007, which is which gives you a lot of material to sort out. Like, boy, oh, boy. Oh, yeah. And including multiple interviews where you could tell he sort of thought, OK, well, we better gather my interview so we can finish the movie. Then they ended up not finishing the movie. They gather footage <laughs> for eight more years. And then he goes, now we better get another interview because there's a sequence at the beginning where he's like, oh, yeah, that was in the stripey shirt interview. And then yeah. we're going to use the bit from the interview where I cry. He just says shorthand for all the times that they've tried to put this movie together and failed. Uh, and now it's finally here. And especially if you don't, like, let's say you have just are a fan of a few Vonnegut books and they really agreed with you. You'll learn a lot. It's basically his whole life story. It's the legend of Vonnegut. Most of the stuff I know about Vonnegut, you know, was represented <laughs> somewhere along the line. And... Uh, yeah. Yeah. It gives you a really good overview. Because I occasionally hear from or we hear from people who are like, yeah, I've heard the Kurt Vonnegut guys podcast mm-hmm. repeatedly. Like mm-hmm. I listened to it, went back to the beginning, heard it again. If you're like that Aww. kind of person, I think this will. I mean, yeah, first of all, thank you so much. But but yeah, this will have a lot of things you already know. And then my experience seeing the movie was like there was several things I know. And also they pulled in one or two archival photos or just new information period. But there was a lot of enriching of what I knew too, which was really cool. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of like seeing photos of Kurt Vonnegut's mom and seeing like, Oh, this is a very like turn of the century wealthy lady. Like that's, that's basically a space alien to us in 2022. It's like a great Gatsby matronly lady. Yeah. I, I was yeah, um, amazing. weirdly affected by seeing his front door and seeing that his parents' initials were woven into the cast iron, like stained glass window. Yeah, it yeah, really wow. hammers home as he spoke about, you know, losing sort of the pride of German culture and then paralleling that with witnessing the bombing of Dresden, of course, but also his own family falling from financial grace and also 
it becoming a badge of shame almost to be a German American after World War II and how they sort of yeah. it there are some things that I mean this is why we love film right there are some things that it just <laughs> gives you a slightly different emotional charge or impact to see the actual footage or see black and white footage of Kurt Vonnegut danced like doing a jig in his yard it's just yeah. cute <laughs> <laughs> you know he could write and then I did a little jig but it's not like seeing the video of Kurt Vonnegut doing a little jig <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you even get a lot of it, I think, because especially this filmmaker, Robert B. Whitey, became, as far as I can tell, legitimately very close friends with Kurt Vonnegut. In the, like in, in the making of this podcast, I leaned on just a, an edited compilation of Vonnegut's letters a lot. And starting from when they get in touch with each other, there's a lot of just like friendly letters to Whitey. Like maybe they cut the business letters down in the compilation, but like... These two really hit it off and were very comfortable with each other for decades of filming. It's really cool. It's one of those stories that makes you think, oh, maybe my mom was right when I was trying to get into comedy. And she's like, you should just call Judd Apatow. He's very popular. I was like, <laughs> no, mom, that's stupid. You're stupid. And then you find out Robert B. Whitey did that. Kurt Vonnegut wrote back. By the end of Kurt's life, they were very good <laughs> friends. They said, I love you to each other. I'm like, dang, maybe I should have called Judd Apatow. You know, sometimes <laughs> it happens. And you can really feel the glee when he talks about that first letter coming back that had... Kurt Vonnegut's signature yeah. on it because at that time in Whitey's life he already considered him a timeless you know hero like a Twain or Abraham Lincoln or you know a mythic figure and just how amazing to get a little ditty written in Kurt Vonnegut's inimitable style where he's kind of nagging you but it's still very sweet signed by Vonnegut himself saying yeah let's hang out oh I can't imagine yeah, man. <laughs> especially even especially something about it being pre-email to me. Yeah. Like he had to physically mail a letter to reply. Like what a what a grail to receive. Like, oh my God, this is his signature and typing. In high school and college, I used to sometimes stop and reflect on Kurt Von like I couldn't believe it was mind blowing to me that Kurt Vonnegut's alive right now. I like Kurt the man who wrote yeah. this book I just finished is somewhere on this earth breathing he feels so foundational to my knowledge base that it seems like he should be from antiquity uh, and it was crazy to me to see like you see him do some speeches in this where he's bashing uh, bush and cheney and i i know he did that and i know he lived to that age but it still has a weird cognitive dissonance effect I, for me I, I remember having that similar feeling, yeah. Cause, and then his, his death hit me really hard because I, I was oh, yeah. some novels in. And th that and George Harrison are the two celebrity deaths of my like teenage years, high school years, where I was like, oof, mm. like this is... Kurt Vonnegut and Douglas Adams man. were mine. <laughs> oh, Ad that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, Adams, <laughs> I, I wore a towel to school all week. Everyone was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? I was like, Aww. I'll explain. <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Read this, then One this, then this. Point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and Whitey, it, it's partly in the film, but he is presented with Breakfast of Champions by a high school teacher, immediately devoured all of Vonnegut. It's also, his, his like professional biography is amazing because... He self-described in one interview as doing paid work and like Hollywood work to pay for his documentaries. And he compared it to a drug habit, which is very, very fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. But he started with documentaries and at age 18 began making a documentary about the Marx Brothers. 
And apparently he spent four years making the documentary, being rejected from USC's film school, and then finishing it and getting it on PBS anyway. And from there, he it was successful enough that he could start a company and continue making work. And that company is called Wyaduck Productions, which is a reference to a classic Marx Brothers joke, if anyone was unaware. Yeah. Why a duck? Why no chicken? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Chico's saying stuff. It's great. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then from there, he's made documentaries about W.C. Fields, Mort Saul, Lenny Bruce, Woody Allen. But, you know. <laughs> right. Woody Allen still has done some interesting films. I'll, I'll give him that. <laughs> right. It it does. It's I and I haven't seen the Allen doc. I think partly because that's just how I felt. Uh, but but I'm sure it's great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it's highly informative. Yeah. And uh, and he has also won awards for it. The Lenny Bruce documentary got nominated for an Oscar. W. C. Fields documentary got nominated for an Emmy. He also recently consulted on a Netflix documentary made by others about the comedian Dick Gregory. Like he, he's a documentarian also with a super specific focus on artists and comedy. Mm-hmm. And the Vonnegut one's almost different from those just in the sense that it's an author instead of a stand-up or a sketch person. Very unique career. And then, of course, most people know him as the name that pops up because he's the showrunner. It pops up at the end of every or most Curb Your Enthusiasm episodes, which is shot in the documentary yeah. style and it is largely improvised. So it kind of makes sense. And he loves comedians, and Larry David is a timeless, monolithic comedian of our time. So it all makes sense. It's just, wow, what a distinct path in life. Like, what a specific thing Robert B. Whitey does. Yeah. I don't think you could replicate that if you tried. Yeah, I think he's the person with this career, because especially because mm-hmm. as far as I can tell, he got hired for Curb based on comedy documentaries and then proceeded to do the first five seasons, win four Emmys. Uh, and also, if if people like don't really know Curb or him, there's a meme on the internet of like taking a situation that feels very Curb, where it's just awkward, and then the next step is a frame of directed by Robert B. Whitey. Yeah, it's just been like excerpted from that context in a fun way. And we've actually encountered his name, as he loved to point out, in Timequake. He is that. So yeah. it's like you got to be pretty close to Vonnegut if you made it as an extra like by name into one of the books that's pretty wild yeah even and timequake he's even pulling a lot of people from his life but not Mm. that many people like you're in the very few maybe like two dozen names tops that make it like that's a core person to him yeah he walks into a room and he names everyone who's in there and sure enough robert b white he makes the cut and yeah and then beyond that he has also done like work with scripted comedy curb is planned but he directed a movie called how to lose friends and alienate people in 2008 starring simon pegg oh he directed Mm -hmm. and co-wrote one season of a british tv show called mr sloan which i haven't seen but it stars nick frost Mm. and also olivia colman so amazing cast oh wow heavy hitters yeah Yeah. and he uh, he co-wrote the 2014 movie version of the giver by lois lowry which i saw and was fine you know it was all right. Um, yeah, good book. And uh, and then on like on top of all that, he also made the 1996 movie version of Mother Night. He wrote and produced that. Uh, Keith Gordon directed it. But Whitey has has so many interlocking documentary and comedy things. And then mm-hmm. the through line of it is a friendship with Vonnegut. Eventually, this documentary, and also making really one of the few Vonnegut adaptations. Like there aren't that many high profile ones that like played in an actual theater. 
Dan Harmon sometimes make noise makes noises about doing Sirens of Titan, but who knows if it'll ever come together. Gosh, I'd yeah. love that. That would be yeah, that would we, just be a real treat. <laughs> yeah, we do need we need more Vonnegut film adaptations for sure. But uh yeah, yeah. we we watched uh Mother Night for the podcast and discussed it previously. So hey, go check that out. Or listen through yeah. again and you'll eventually reach that episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if you cycle back, we yeah, we I think we've done the main Vonnegut movies mm-hmm. within the episode about the book each time. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. They weren't separate. I forget. It's been so long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this I think this is kind of the first episode just about a movie. Yeah. Cool. And uh and Whitey also directed a stage play of Happy Birthday Wanda June in LA in two thousand one. He did it at the Elephant Theater, which is next door to where we saw an adaptation of Sirens of Titan on stage. Like he, Whitey's very, very much like a driving person of Vonnegut stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. like, like it's very exciting to me that he could get this project out there because it's, I think it's pretty much the person you'd want to do it out of all filmmakers. Yeah, absolutely. He takes a lot of care with it. I, well, I'll save that for the appropriate segment. I'm getting back in the groove. I, I have a thought, but I'll file it appropriately. <laughs> well, then, uh, and then he also has a co-director. It seems like mainly because Whitey realized, and and it's a very autobiographical tradition of Vonnegut writing type documentary. He tells you about the whole process of making it, but Whitey realized he was a chunk of the story to the point where he needed a co-director to basically take over and like interview him. And so Don Argot is his co-director, uh, who's made a bunch of documentaries. He made one called Believer in 2018 about the front man of Imagine Dragons, who is a Mormon uh, and pushed for more inclusion of LGBTQ people in the Mormon church. He also made a like partly reenacted documentary about John DeLorean, where Alec Baldwin played John DeLorean. And apparently he just put out a doc about political cartoonist Bill Malden and also is working on a doc about musician Ronnie James Dio. Like Holy Diver! <laughs> Pure reflex. Yeah. Uh, you know, if I say Dio. Holy Diver! God. All yeah, right. We're going to be here all day. I... <laughs> all of my Pavlov training of Michael has paid mm-hmm. off. I did it quietly <laughs> in the background. Uh but yeah, he he seems to do a lot of work about artists and creative people and and their like you know influence in the world and seems seems to have been a great partner on this. Yeah, and I look just looking through your notes here, did a ten part series about Marvel versus DC. I'm that's relevant to my oh, yeah. interest, Slugfest. So yeah, look for that if you're interested. And directed Slow Learners, which I have seen and I really enjoyed. Underrated comedy. Oh, cool. Yeah, that was yeah, the one big scripted thing in his resume on IMDb, and that's awesome. And uh, and yeah, and then this project, it started with Whitey, as Michael said, and as is in the doc, Whitey writes Vonnegut a letter in 1982 when Whitey is 23 years old. He also uses his Marx Brothers Project's letterhead to, I think, make it feel more official. And he wrote him a letter saying, someone should make a documentary of you. I would love to do it. I can get financing within a year if you're on board. Uh, that letter was in 1982, and this film came out at the end of 2021. So it took a while. <laughs> As a creative professional, though, I learned so much about hustling and networking just from the he made so many correct choices, putting it on official looking letterhead, leading with, yeah, I can break you into a new medium and open a new market for you. 
funding's already going well, even though he had no reason to think that. He's just saying that, like in large part. <laughs> he's going like, I'm pretty sure it'll work out if we work together. Ah, very smart. Good angle. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have four fruit. Yeah, it really, it really worked out. And then mm-hmm. uh, they connected and they, they began talking and then the actual shooting started several years later. In the film, Whitey talks about how he, Whitey, is now a little over 60 years old, and that was Vonnegut's age when they started doing this. And so it it feels deeply full circle, and the title, mm-hmm. Unstuck in Time, is right. Like this, this, he also, Whitey also talks about in the movie that he just started shooting stuff, and he figured out, he, fi- he assumed, like, I'll just figure out the movie as we go. And then he ended up with this trove that becomes this doc. Yeah, and I guess felt... There was some point where he's so deep in that it felt incomplete until Vonnegut's life was in some way complete or could be put into a complete context, yeah. uh, which is why we didn't. So I guess that's the other thing to learn as a creative professional. Don't give up because it can take a while. <laughs> and yeah, maybe I, Vonnegut also probably made that a little tricky with totally good, solid decisions, but like saying time quakes my last novel and then he keeps writing and then he keeps mm-hmm. finding new stuff to do. And then he's on the right. daily show hanging out and there was always something going on the whole way. Something of interest and notable that when he first approached him, unlike when we came to Vonnegut, which, well, if, if you go back to when we first came to Vonnegut, he still had maybe time quake in his future and uh man without a country in his future. But Whitey was not in on the ground floor, but uh, according to your notes here, he had, yeah, he yeah. had nine novels out. So he was in the middle of writing Dead Eye Dick when they first connected. So he was like on the Vonnegut train mid stride, you know, it was still chugging along, which was interesting place to be coming from. Yeah, absolutely. Like, there, yeah, there were still several more books to come and, and all kinds of other things he would do, too. And uh, yeah, he'd yeah. already had his big break, but Whitey didn't know where this was going to end up, obviously. Uh as they were crafting it, which is really cool. Uh, you see a lot, I don't know, I feel like a lot of documentaries sit, the documentarian sits in a room and goes, okay, ABC, this is the story. And Whitey, I've seen, I also did get to see the Marx Brothers uh, thing. My dad showed that to me when I was growing up. And that's awesome. He's very, very much the other kind of documentarian where you just have a big slab of marble, you shoot everything, you don't know what's gonna become of it, and you just slowly build. It definitely has that feel. Yeah, I haven't I haven't seen that Marx Brothers doc, and I, I, I'm glad to hear it's like that. Like, I'm sure he just discovered absolutely everything he could and then yeah. made a movie later, you know? I couldn't find anywhere to stream it again or find it online currently, but Same. hey, if you're listening yeah. and you find it anywhere, let us know. I think it's on physical media, if out there at all. It might have been wiped from the face of the earth for all I know. And yeah, and then Whitey's done a little bit of interviews about this process. He did an interview with the Library of America, interviewed by Max Rudin. Whitey said that Vonnegut like, never really put firm pressure on him to finish this and get it out. Apparently, one time near the end of his life, Vonnegut said something along the lines of, like, if this hasn't happened by now, it probably won't, and I understand if it never comes together. But mm. they, uh, they really seem to enjoy hanging out so much that, you know, 25, 30 years of filming could happen without Vonnegut being like bothered by it and it probably wasn't daily but it's that you know that's a lot of commitment to being followed around by cameras yeah you must genuinely like the person if the seventh time 15 years into the process they go can we come into your home and film you again 
and you say yes. Like yeah. you must at that point have no expectation that the film will actually be finished. You just like the person. Cause I can't imagine you're thinking this one will do it. He's going to finish it this time. Uh, <laughs> and, and like Vonnegut, I don't think by the nature of the film lived to see the film finish. Right. So yeah, from no. Vonnegut's own point of view, this was just a really whimsical like friendship with another creative, which is kind of a neat way to think about it. Yeah, he never even came close to maybe why they showed him pieces of stuff. But yeah, mm. what what it ended up being. Yeah, we don't yeah. find out. I wonder how much any like if he ever assembled a reel or an act of it and showed it to Vonnegut or anything like that. But they don't really get into it, so we can only speculate. Yeah. And, uh, and like last things about the production mm -hmm. late in the game, they brought in an Indianapolis based animator named Vince Gorman. So there's a few animated sequences, which were some of my favorites, uh, but that, that was from him. Yeah. And then they also ran a 2015 Kickstarter campaign to like keep the process moving, which did keep it going. And then they finished it. And now you can go to vonnegutmovie.com and find out all about it. I, I just bought it to stream on Amazon. You can buy it a lot of places. And I'm assuming post-Curb, he can get any documentary he wants off the ground now. Yeah, you would think. Only issue being, I don't know if he has another 40 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's got he's to pick more carefully. Right, and I he he does also describe late in, within the film sort of really wanting to see this thing through and like mm -hmm. finish it. I, mm -hmm. I feel like maybe now also just his plate for new projects is clearer. And yeah. the past few years, he was just like, no, why would I start a doc about, I, I don't know who, Louis C.K. or something. Yeah. Like, like I should just finish this. <laughs> <laughs> Very critical doc, And I that hope. turned out uh, <laughs> to be a good decision. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I invented that interest. He's never said that. Uh, <laughs> no, I wonder how many comedians he's like, oh, glad I didn't cover him then. Right. After that news. <laughs> 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 But, uh, but yeah, I think that's pretty much Franken-time. And I think we can hop into the next segment here, which is summary time. Boiling, new boiling, boiling, cues, boiling, boiling it down. New sound cues. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a segment to run through just like the key beats of this documentary, how it works and, and what's in it and what we've got. It's pretty straightforward, but also hops around a lot, which I think describes a lot of Vonnegut's books, too. Starts as all... Things about Vonnegut must with someone saying, listen, and then a bird going pooty wheat, and then the writer inserting themselves into the project. And we'll see this again with Tom Roston. I just think it's funny that if anyone yeah. is writing about Vonnegut, they go like, listen, pooty wheat, I, the writer, am also here with you. Get it? I'm doing Vonnegut. <laughs> You're like, yep, we got it. It's, it's his thing that he invented and no one else can really imitate uh, but I did really like that it then, in a reference to one of my favorite segments from Slaughterhouse-Five, uh, rewinds from modern day and a report of Vonnegut's death all the way to a 1970s new news report interviewing him after his first big break, like after Slaughterhouse-Five published. Um, and there's, like, look, he spent 40 years being friends with the man. Obviously, Robert Whitey is not phoning this in. So there's a <laughs> lot of structural and formal references to very notable Vonnegutisms, or it feels very Vonnegut-y. You feel at home if you're a Vonnegut fan. Uh, you're in good hands. He knows what he's doing, and he knows what Vonnegut's all about. Definitely understands the tropes. Yeah, 100%. So much is familiar, and so much is like very lovingly 
rendered in. Like mm-hmm. there's shortly after the very start, there's a quick animated sequence where like it's the boots from the Bluebeard cover walking past the bird cages from other illustrations he's done. And like there's there's all the notes and tones and bits. Maybe this I don't mean it to sound cheesy, but like, you know, when a sitcom intro shows you all the characters again, it's mm. like, oh, I'm home. I'm seeing all the characters again. Great. This is really cool. But it's more meaningful than that. It's not it's not just sitcom characters smiling. Yeah. Um, but let's see. I mean, did you want us to describe Vonnegut's life in order? Because <laughs> it does that as well. No. Okay. But no, I think we can we can just describe that as one brick. Like it's an overview, yeah. Yeah. It, and it basically interweaves the story of Vonnegut's life uh, and the major beats of Vonnegut's life with the story of Robert Whitey coming to know Vonnegut, working on this documentary, and eventually finishing by making the documentary that you're now watching. Very Vonnegutian. Yeah. And there's quite a bit interwoven with interviews with a few experts, interviews with pretty much all of Vonnegut's kids and adopted kids, as far as mm-hmm. I could tell, because he has three children and also adopts four children who were his sisters. And they also have a lot of like, archival footage of everything from Dresden, when it was a city, to you know, like home movies of the Vonnegut family. Uh, and then also it, one part of Whitey's life that's interwoven is him meeting and falling in love with his wife. And then toward the end of the documentary, we discover that his wife becomes ill. And so then he's grappling with that. And also, I guess the end is almost interweaving Vonnegut's life ending with with Whitey and his wife, Linda, appreciating their life together, I guess I would say. Yeah. And how instrumental this friendship with Vonnegut actually became. Uh, there's a key moment where he asks, well, he dis- he explains to Kurt that he wants to marry this person, but She's like, I I believe due to the medical complication or if I'm incorrect, correct me, but maybe just because of their mutual ages. He was like, if we get married, if I marry this woman, we won't have kids. It's too late for that or whatever. And Vonnegut yeah, thinking it's it over separate for from a the few illness, days. But yeah, it's an age yeah, thing. Yeah, okay. Yeah. It was an age yeah. thing. Vonnegut just saying, uh, you don't need kids. Marry her. Um, so very directly <laughs> like responsible in some way for giving him the blessing, you know, blessing the union. And of course, yeah. uh, relied on Vonnegut. I'm, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm sure they both did when they hit tough times and uh, all throughout Vonnegut uh, to hear Whitey tell it at least is very supportive and loving and says that they're two of his favorite people. And he loves them. Uh, wh- yeah. What was the really touching quote? Oh, I hope you two love each other as much as I love both of you. That's, that's pretty powerful to get from Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah. Yeah, it's he he gives them a set of candlesticks that are antique and similar to ones he's given his children uh, mm-hmm. for their households, you know. And uh, and then when Whitey puts up a play of Happy Birthday, Wanda June, his wife, Linda, is the star, is is the main lady in it. And like it's 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 just it's just really special. Yeah. yeah. That, that he shares all this and, and makes it I think it definitely makes the Vonnegut story richer. And is also just a very, very personal. A lot to share. Yeah. And speaking of Richard, interesting that it doesn't shy away from, because he interviews all of Vonnegut's kids, as you say, and they have, some of them have differing views. Thought it was interesting. Some of them describing him as not a particularly attentive father or just (laughs) saying that he was not cuddly or he'd run out of the room he was writing in and just yell, shut up, everybody shut up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he had, you gotta he went from having like 
uh, grown kids who are on the way out of the house to four young children in the house. Uh, and I understand that was probably taxing if you're trying to write all day. But I found yeah. that it also, yeah, it didn't shy away from the Rashomon effect, at least, you know, giving everyone their own say and their own spin and their own take on what he was like. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, to a great deal weaves in um, Kurt Vonnegut's first wife, Jane, who yeah. I, th I think other than Ginger Strand's book called The Brothers Vonnegut, this is the most I've gained or learned about his wife, Jane, who to some extent kind of made the entire Kurt Vonnegut, the author thing happen. And that's yes. great. <laughs> it's kind of a Vonna what in and of that. Like it's, mm -hmm. I think if anything, he had a blind spot for women being you know, of equal nobility as, as men, like Vonnegut, not Vonnegut that I, did. Yeah. Vonnegut, yeah. not that, uh, I would call him a raging misogynist or anything. I think at heart, he was a humanist. And if you sat mm. him down and asked him, he would say all the right things and want love and acceptance for everyone. But, you know, we, over the course of reading his books have noted that sometimes he doesn't give as much credence to the female character's point of view or perspective. And if this documentary is to be believed, I think you could accuse him of that when it comes to Jane. It feels like she was sort of the power behind the throne, literally writing to publishers, uh, selling on his behalf, getting his initial story sold over and over. And after he got his big break, they split up and he described it as just, I know something's wrong, but I don't know what it is. And, you know, fell in with a much younger woman. So very classic sort of, yeah. Oh, I'm rich and famous now, and it breaks up the marriage kind of deal. And as, according to the documentary, Jane never begrudged him and was always still a big supporter of his work and thought he was a genius anyway. Just seems like the most accommodating spouse you could ever <laughs> chance upon. <laughs> yeah, really, especially because they describe, are very open about the idea that he was like not involved in domestic duties very much. Mm -hmm. In a household where they have seven kids for many yeah. years. And that's, I, I don't know, man. Hard hard to imagine. Uh. <laughs> There's some phantom thread, right? He got to be the, I am the genius artist. So everything in the household just funnels towards let dad do his work because he's an important man. And in this case, it happened to be true. He is. But, uh, <laughs> you know, you still there's the human cost, what, such as it is, although nothing monstrous came to light. Like, I, I didn't leave disappointed by Kurt Vonnegut. I just think yeah. he was a writer writing about very dark, serious themes who had been through uh, the terrible parts of war and uh, kind of came out the way you expected. Not always cuddly. Yeah, may maybe the one other like brick of the summary to say is that I'd say this documentary focuses the most on Slaughterhouse Five out of all the books, which is a totally normal choice to make with Gravonigat. But which we, most people tend to do, yeah. Yeah, we get the most about Dresden and about his um, with his writing process. We probably get the most behind the scenes of this book. We get alternate titles, alternate names for Billy Pilgrim. Like that's the right kind of the key book in the story and also in what the structure is sort of copying and borrowing. Though I do hope if our show encourages anything, it encourages people who were introduced to Slaughterhouse-Five in high school or Breakfast, the Champions or whatever it may be, and thought, wow, that sure was great, 
to realize that he is not a one-hit wonder. He has a lot of bangers and to yeah. explore the Vonnegut canon further because uh, nothing against Slaughterhouse-Five. It is an unmitigated masterwork. I agree with the view of history, which seems to be like that's the one that will persist. Um, but man, there is, there's nothing wrong with Breakfast of Champions. There's nothing wrong <laughs> with Sirens of Titan or Slapstick. Like There's a lot of great books for you to explore. Um, but, you know, buckle in, because last time we covered Slaughterhouse-Five, the graphic novel. Next time we'll be covering a book that is explicitly only about Slaughterhouse-Five. People like Slaughterhouse-Five. It's a good book. It's his big hit. Yeah, and just World War II and his life connecting to it. Like, it's such a... Like, of like, makes sense as an anchor. I get it, you know? Like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and in a way, it, it seems like it was his. We find out in this documentary and in the Tom Roston book, not to spoil too much, but it seems like it was his this movie. Or <laughs> it took him the longest <laughs> to write of all his books. And he went through the most drafts where he ended up trashing the entire draft and saying, ah, I did that wrong. And as the documentary points out, this was pre saving files on your computer. So you're talking sitting at a typewriter, typing out the story that you believe evokes like the horror of war that you lived through and going, now it's still not good enough and starting over from scratch. He did that many, many times with Slaughterhouse-Five. So I understand why it's the one, but read all of them. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I'm just thinking of the task of keeping or tossing all the paper even. Like, mm-hmm. I'm glad I don't have to deal with that. But like your your organized filing system of failed drafts is such a burden that would that would suck. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't believe after they show the way he writes all hunched over and the chain smoking. Terrible posture. Terrible so smoking. hardy. Yeah. Like, I'm just yeah. amazed that at the very end of his life in his 80s, he's standing upright speaking normally like he must have been <laughs> on a physical level he could he was uh hardy he could withstand a lot of punishment yeah he liked to drink too as far as i know and like yeah big drinker just... big smoker always poor posture <laughs> yep never never uh harmed him in the least so learn learn from this young people <laughs> do whatever you want it's fine <laughs> When, uh, and I think that sums it up. I think we can get into the next segment here, which is Highlight Reel. It's so bright, I can't see. <laughs> yeah, protect your eyes, but smoke, drink, do whatever you want. That's the advice. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, this is uh, just a new segment because we've never done a whole episode just about a film. But this is simply our favorite parts of the documentary. Also, like techniques of filmmaking and choices that we like a lot. But, you know, what are the the gems of the film? What jumped out? Yeah, I and it says in the notes that this could also be Kurt Blurts. Is that accurate? Because I think yeah. I, I tend to take notes in the form of Kurt Blurts. So the real treasures to me, I think, are things that, you know, Kurt Vonnegut quotes that from the footage that's just incidental Uh because he has yeah. a way with words <laughs> and he revealed things that I'm just happy to hear confirmed or hear in his own words. Like he said, my books are jokes, right. mosaics of jokes. And he talked a lot about wanting, just wanting to be a comedian and string together jokes in a sensible way. And that is such a revealing way to enter into the Vonnegut canon because of course he covers very, very serious stuff, but to think of him like, look, Whitey has covered Woody Allen, who's, 
I will say another nice thing about Woody Allen. His early stand-up is quite good. Um, so it's Woody cool, Allen, yeah. Lenny yeah. Bruce, and the Marx Brothers, I think it says something that he considers Kurt Vonnegut of that cut from the same cloth. Uh, and that Kurt Vonnegut was constantly both a comedian and in science fiction, as he said, two denigrated genres. And yet he elevated them to the level of legendary literary accomplishment. I yeah. think that makes it all the more impressive that you're that you're not you're not coming in all James Joyce dour faced and writing something that's in Latin and French. And, and you have to, you know, have a degree to understand his goal was just the opposite, and he still arrived at literary perfection. I, f- I find that refreshing. That's dead on, yeah. And I, I, there's even there's one bit in this where they also mention the idea that like Vonnegut for the 20th century is Mark Twain for the 19th century. And I, I almost wish I could ask Robert Whitey, like, did you think about any Mark Twain docs, or, or like, did Ken Burns cover that too much already? Mm-hmm. You know, like, there's this very tiny set of people of comedians and a couple authors where i think it it all kind of is on that wavelength that all adds up and he clearly knew it because he named his one of his children mark in honor of twain yeah uh he also says in this film there are millions of lonely old people in the world and when they get frightened they call the police and that isn't much of a solution Kurt Vonnegut <laughs> said a cab, you guys. A <laughs> cab. Defund the police, says Kurt Vonnegut in his own words. I li- <laughs> I'm delighted at that. Yeah, he got it. Um, I was really moved by, I, or I'm projecting, especially because we just read that Tom Roston book, but uh, <laughs> on the train, he says, which is a quote from one of his books, but he sort of expands on it. He says, I prefer laughter to crying because there's less cleanup afterwards. And then he pauses and then he says, also, though, you can shut it down faster. And then I swear you can see the pain in his eyes and his unwillingness to talk about the war seriously. And it made yeah. me recontextualize his humor as a coping mechanism rather than a way. I'm sure it was both, but uh, he always describes it because he's self-deprecating and humble as I was a way to get attention. Right. The youngest kid is always a comedian. I just wanted attention from Alice or whoever. Um, but I really think there's, and we'll talk more about this next episode, but there's a coping mechanism there. There's using humor to distance yourself from the painful reality and yeah. to see it in his body and in his face is powerful. That, that for me, that was like top, top shiny lights, top highlight of the whole thing was that you get to see how he basically lied about what that pain of the war and, and other pains in his life were for him and like and using comedy to cope with it and, and using other things to cope with it and times in the film. And like if a book writes about that, you just read it and say, OK, I guess this author thinks Kurt Vonnegut did that. But like it's, you know, you, you see him in a very human way, just try to constantly process various tragedies of life by laughing. And say things like, the war didn't really affect me all that much. <laughs> and you're not buying it. Like, you can feel that you're like, no, it did. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, yeah, if you just read his words in print because he's Kurt goddamn Vonnegut, you're like, well, I guess it didn't affect him that much. I'm not going to question this. Um, but in a documentary, I you can see when someone's just lubricating the situation with laughter. Yeah. I loved the, the origin of Tralfamador being a way to make fun of Bernie. That's that slayed me. He talked about how he invented Tralfamador because they were all lying out on the pier or whatever. And 
yeah. Bernie, the smart child of the family, pointing to constellations and going, you know, that's Atreides. That's the Seven Sisters. That's blah, blah, blah. And he just, after a silence, because he realized, which is such a funny thought to me, Bernie could have said anything and no one present would know if it's true or false. Oh, <laughs> like, you could just say stuff. So he just pointed and went, that's Tralfamador. <laughs> when he was 10 years old or something like that. And then remembered yeah. that and used it in Sirens, of course. Or and Slaughterhouse-Five. Yeah, and such a such a cool thing a documentary can do that they go to the pier where it happened. They go to, I think it's called Lake Max and Cucky in northern mm-hmm. Indiana. Also, Upper Midwest has a huge culture of tiny lakes where people vacation. Like, you don't go right. far. You just go to Wisconsin and sit at a lake. But, uh, yeah, they just go there and stage Vonnegut reenacting this and then later on break sort of break the the narrative tension and show like an outtake of Vonnegut being asked to stage it and do another take and he says up your ass and laughs about it and won't do it again like it's just such a fun combination of all that he loves busting Whitey's balls yeah there's a there's a few outtakes that they include where he goes can we get that again and he goes oh fuck off (laughs) something like that (laughs) everyone everyone giggles yeah (laughs) it's like he's aware that he's kurt vonnegut it's like if mark twain knew ah picking my nose will be funny because i'm mark twain (laughs) it's great yeah like like little clips of vonnegut just doing a funny walk past a sign you know Mm -hmm. great yeah Uh, give me all that genuinely trying to be a comedian obviously has younger child youngest child syndrome absolutely you can see it yeah And yeah, and the the other points where you see Vonnegut laughing through pain just really, really stuck with me. Like there's one part where he's seeing a plaque listing names of high school classmates from the war who were it's like a memorial to them being in the war. And he he just suddenly starts telling a, a story about a high school classmate who died of spinal meningitis in basic training and then a college classmate who heard the Pearl Harbor news, was too excited while bathing and hit his head and died. And both deaths, he just like, Vonnegut just describes the death and breaks into laughter and then describes the other death and breaks into laughter. And you can, you can like see him short circuiting in a way he doesn't on the page of a novel where he's kind of planned this and thought it through and worked it out. But he's just like rawly processing a story and... Uh, all he can do is laugh. I don't know. What do you do? Yeah. He was like, yeah, he wanted to fight in World War II. He was so excited to join to join the army that he fell in the shower and killed himself. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's a very human. What else are you going to say 35 yeah. years later, you know? Yeah. Just really striking. And even and one part where he they film Vonnegut on a train in the modern day talking about his war experiences and they intercut Vonnegut claiming it didn't mean anything with what was probably like sort of B-roll in between footage of Vonnegut, Mm -hmm. like very sadly eating chocolate and kind of staring into the middle distance and really not at all having that same character going on. And it like, you know, for all I know, it's artificial. They just threw in a time he was snacking and sad for an unrelated reason, but it, it feels like it's really getting at what's going on, like what's under the surface there. And you get the impression Whitey probably wouldn't have projected that if he didn't feel it to be true and he knew the man well. So I, I buy it. Totally. I buy that totally. I don't buy Vonnegut's statements that the war did not affect him. Uh, I was really moved 
of course, I mean, as you might be, might well be by some of the stuff he said towards the end of his life. On the funny side, he had, I'm 83 now, and I'd like to think I don't have much more to put up with. Thank God. (laughs) (laughs) I'm out of here. Um, But also, (laughs) the words that he hopes are read at his funeral really moved me. I have finished my course. I have ceased to enjoy and suffer. Please transfer your love and benevolence to your living fellow men. The memory of the one as well as the other is appreciated and honored. Man, what a blur. jokes. Right. No, you know, uh, the moments that he actually was willing to take life seriously and be heartfelt are, of course, all the more powerful because you're usually dealing with someone who puts a thick layer of irony between the truth of the statement and you. Yeah. Yeah. The way he fools around is like such a like it's almost a service too. like he's he's ducking and he's also like to use your time the best I can you should be laughing a lot you should be having a good time Mm -hmm. and then when he when he's being serious it's equally service oriented it's like this is just going to be the best possible phrase anybody can write I'll do that yeah I really love finding out that I almost want to call them his religious beliefs or his philosophical beliefs I guess And this is my last one, at least that I made note of consciously. I do believe time repeats itself like a pendulum from birth to death and back again. We live the cycles of our life through all eternity, and I should like to do that. Uh, Uh, That's very comforting to me (laughs) because that's actually a metaphysical layout that I had never considered before. It's not reincarnation. It's not cyclical time. Pendulous time. Very interesting. Yeah. And essentially the canon of Slaughterhouse-Five. Right. He essentially believes that's how life and time are. And he just, and that just many of us, I guess, never get unstuck and notice it. You know, we just live yeah. in a line. Yeah. And they talk about a moment, I guess, in the woods where he meditated upon a tree and like put his head against the tree and then said, you know, time doesn't work anything like we think it does. And it just, it <laughs> yeah. has that mad philosopher vibe. Like he saw something, he pierced the veil and saw something. Really if cool. I'm going to believe it from anyone, yeah, I'd believe it from Kurt. Yeah. And yeah, and then like other things in the movie that jumped out to me, like I, I'd never really seen footage of the city of Dresden and they have just just some black and white footage somebody made of Dresden before it was bombed. And it it yeah, it looks like a big cake, like Vonnegut said, like it's it's astonishing. Makes you realize it really was like the library of Alexandria burning down hundreds of times in a row. No, to say nothing of the human costs, of course, but uh, yeah. it would be weird, like if Vegas got nuked and was gone. <laughs> you know, it was. It's it's like those great sketches Alex and I did that are wiped off the internet. What beauty! <laughs> what beauty we've lost. <laughs> yeah, but definitely drives it home oh, to see man. the footage for sure. I, uh, man, I'm also just thinking of Fallout New Vegas now. What a game. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Classic. <laughs> yeah, and, and also the, the footage, photos of the Vonnegut family. I feel like like each family member really jumped out to me. And the the old photo that hit me the most was actually just Whitey and Argot. They take a picture of like the backyard of the Vonnegut house in Massachusetts in West Barnstable. Mm-hmm. And they just do a drawing of like... Here's where the loud kids would have been in the yard. Here's Kurt Vonnegut's studio on the back of the house, like next to it. No other rooms insulating him from the volume of it. Like it, right. I'd, I'd never seen his uh, day-to-day work laid out like that. 
Yeah, yeah. And the animations that you mentioned already were great as well. Yeah. Uh, really Mostly, out. I mean, they're things that already made previous Kurt Blurt segments on this show. So I don't need to read like Vonnegut reading from his own book, which we've already covered. But uh, it does elevate to hear like uh, Breakfast of Champion passages with the very cool animation in the style of Vonnegut's paintings with like, yeah. you know, and this is what he said to his son make me young or to his author make me young make me young uh just cool to see it brought to life via animation for sure and that, that was the book quote and animation that hit me the most by far too is yeah trout asking vonnegut to make him young in breakfast of champions like i it's suddenly yeah. one of the or, best vonnegut movies i've ever seen uh, it was just that chunk like <laughs> i agree arise mr trout you're free you're free vonnegut saying it in his own old like wavery voice with the cartoon yeah. that is his classic sketch of himself. Very, very effective. Yeah. Uh, another technique they do is they use clips of, of, of Kurt Vonnegut when he read his own stuff. And then there's a lot of times they use the actor, Sam Waterston, uh, probably most famous for law and order to, mm -hmm. to, and they show him in the VO booth. Like, am I ready? You know, that's it, very behind the scenes, but yeah. they have him also read some of Kurt's words probably every time they didn't have a Kurt recording. And one of those that hit me the most was him reading Kurt Vonnegut talking about the very end of life and how it feels like his future is just curled up in front of him like a dog. And that like earlier in the Waterson stuff, I was like, eh, I guess this is okay. And then his delivery of that, I was like, Oh, I can see why this is in the movie. This is great. See why, and I see why they got Sam Waterston. Yeah, his voice is a perfect pairing for it. Yeah. I wonder when they, because I have to assume they got Waterston once. I wonder at what point in the 40-year journey he taped that stuff and he was ever like, <laughs> I wonder if that movie's ever going to come out. <laughs> you know, I was about to say in the clip, Waterston has white hair, but I think he's a Steve Martin where he always had white hair. So that doesn't he's tell us anything. White hair, yeah, yeah. <laughs> First episode of Law and Order, someone stole the pigments from his hair. That was not a good joke. Don't laugh. Don't laugh, Alex. But they never caught the criminal. I'm laughing through the pain of that. That's true. Dun, dun. <laughs> there are also one other archival thing that really hit me. So if, if people don't remember, Kurt Vonnegut's sister and his brother-in-law both died at basically the same time. And then Kurt and Jane took in the four sons of this sister mm -hmm. and brother-in-law. There's one part in the movie where there's an old photo of all four boys lined up. And then they cut straight to the four boys in the modern day on a couch, all being interviewed. Yeah. And that, something about that, man, maybe just generational stuff is speaking to me a lot lately. I don't know. That was amazing. Definitely always works. Uh, same manu Similar maneuver to him showing... Kurt shows us around his old house and shows his own handprint in the cement from when he was like five or six years old. And he yeah. puts his giant old hand on the little baby hand. <laughs> yeah. Like, wow. Time, man. It sure does pass. <laughs> yeah. It's so messed up, but mm -hmm. also astonishing. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, other little stuff like they, on, in a lot of the old photos, they bothered to animate smoke whenever there was smoke from a cigarette or a battle, mm -hmm. or that was really kind of the two main times, but they bothered to animate that. Just zhuzh up the picture you're looking at a little bit. I don't know. Yeah. Works for me. It's, it's mm -hmm. like when Ken Burns pans. Like, I like it. It just gives me a lot. Subtly clever documentary tactics that you've seen. It's not like you've never seen them before, but 
very yeah. confidently assembled, very like workmanlike. <laughs> I thought, and it highly, highly engaging. Uh, I definitely felt like it whizzed by. Big time, yeah. Because he alters his tactics. It's not. It's not like Ken Burns where. The whole thing is panning across photos. It's like photo, then found footage, then a modern day uh, interview, then a cartoon, then a photo again. It really like mm, yeah. makes it re-engage you continuously in a nice way. Yeah, constant interest. Yeah, yeah. He's good at documentaries. Oh, and I and just the way they shot the bird that says Pooty Wheat at the beginning and end. Great nature documentary work. Feels Hard to right. Get a bird like that. Yeah, it's <laughs> cool. I'm I'm gonna assume that the sound was added because it's a perfect pooty wheat and it's a perfect mm. shot of the exact kind of bird you'd expect to see. Yeah, I'm gonna guess they were paired in post, but I don't know. <laughs> we'll never know. Hey, folks, Alex dropping in with a quick pickup because my brother is a birder. So I asked him what the bird is. It turns out it is a European starling, which is a very common bird in Europe and also the U.S. and many other places. So it could have been the one doing the pooty wheat in the, the vicinity of a battle or in the U.S. Who knows? Anyway, European starling on with the show. Well, next segment here to continue to talk about the work. The segment is called Vana Meh. Vana oh, Beep. here it comes. Mermaid. Drag him. <laughs> and that it's a slight basically an alteration of the vana watt segment title because uh, maybe to me and we'll we'll also explore if there are any true vana watts but to me this very loving and also made by a very thoughtful person documentary didn't totally rise to the level of vana watts at any point but what like kind of didn't totally work for us what's a vana meh this will be short because I, I or at least i only have one and it yeah i uh, I have one main one, yeah, and that's it. The interweaving, I understand that it is what Vonnegut does and it makes sense. And if I were friends with Kurt Vonnegut for 40 years, I would also want people to know that because that's pretty cool. But I did (laughs) feel that, especially by the end where he's intercutting footage of himself, Robert B. Whitey, driving up to Vonnegut's house with footage of Vonnegut driving up to Vonnegut's house. And then the credits are images of Vonnegut as a child doing things juxtaposed with images of Whitey as a child doing things like here's Kurt Vonnegut swimming when he was eight. Here's me swimming when I was eight. I, I find it a little suspect of just like, well, what are you saying? You are Vonnegut or <laughs> I don't, I don't know why they were, it got to the point of being so interwoven, like the story beat at the end being about then Vonnegut died and my wife got sick. The constant need to sort of, flex the fact that they led parallel lives or that they were somehow soulmates or something look if i were in whitey's position i would do the exact same thing but i don't know it feels a little self-aggrandizing is all i i totally get what you mean yeah because i and it made it a richer doc to me to have whitey in there and also and it's it's subtle the thing i'm nick i was looking for something to ding him on yeah it's super subtle no yeah and and it's also like when we were describing the summary of this, like that interweaving at the end of Vonnegut's life ending and Whitey's wife, Linda, getting sick, I see why they're interwoven. And also those are sort of separate events. Like mm-hmm. it's good to know about both of them. But I like I, I was curious a little more to know from Whitey of like, did did Linda getting sick specifically help push you to end this documentary? Because otherwise they're just a little bit like separate troubles almost why connect them per yeah. se yeah like like it they I, they do connect especially because it's 
Kurt Vonnegut as a key person in the run-up of them becoming a couple and in their lives together as a couple. So they do connect it all as like valid. They just were also otherwise a little separate to me. That's all I got, though. It was yeah. quite good. I think, yeah, I think my only other thing was, and I also like trust Whitey if he knows better than me, than me mm. just from reading letters in a book. But one element of the movie is I think they really pitch Vonnegut's time in Iowa as being chiefly inspirational and chiefly like finally he was around other artists and that let him crack this and from the letters we've gotten from like the the re <laughs> i did my own research he said in a terrible voice but like i i got the sense that iowa was pretty hard on him and was mm -hmm. lonely and prevented him from writing a lot of the time and seems to have contributed to the crack up of his marriage quite a bit and so it, that like if they know better great but it seems like that could have also been more of a focus of that, of discussing that time. Yeah. And I'd always love more, fo uh, like it was really interesting to find out Mr. Rosewater was written while he worked at the Saab dealership and sort of the relation between those things. It was a time when he was very poor and he understandably wrote about uh, your a book where he literally says the main character in this book is a large sum of money. Uh, I'd love that <laughs> yeah. for every Vonnegut book. I would have loved them to zoom in on, well, when he wrote Jailbird, this was happening in his life. And that's how you can see it reflected. That's my favorite, favorite stuff. So I could have had a little more of that and a little less of Slaughterhouse-Five all the time, every day, Slaughterhouse-Five. <laughs> uh, even though, as we said, I understand why that happens. Um, but yeah. I think as a deep Vonnegut reader, I'd be more interested almost in, like, well, what was going on when he wrote Bluebeard? Anything? Anything that ties to the narrative of that novel, you know? Yeah, because and the, this movie also gives us a lot of player piano background of like he felt like he was criticizing his employer, General Electric, while working for them. And how do that you get it so out? Clear. You know, <laughs> it's easy to say in a nutshell, I think. So you latch onto it. Yeah. But in a, and if people want to read them, there's uh, Dan Wakefield edited a collection of Kurt Vonnegut's letters in June 1965, he writes to Miller Harris about the University of Iowa job offer and describes it jokingly as the end of his career, <laughs> like and mm -hmm. uh, and then writes several letters describing Iowa and the job as like a thing that prevented him from getting any work done and a thing that you know he was going to like wrap up his two years of contract and get out and never look back. And I think it was like. Also, what they say, it's good he befriended all these authors. He legitimately did get to know other artists. But like in one letter in February 1966, he says, What a peculiar interlude this Iowa City thing has been, eh? I wonder if there's any sadism in Paul's bringing writers out here, knowing damn well that they'll cease to write, end quote. Like he, he felt like it was like he was like, if I could get out of this stupid day job dealing with students as much as I like mm -hmm. it, then I could actually get some novels done. Compare that to his quote in the film, a writer is fortunate in that he can cure himself every day if he can find time to write that day. So he hated not getting that time. <laughs> I think he resented that a lot and anything that stood in the way of that. Yeah. So that adding that color to the Iowa thing would have been nice. Uh, yeah. But it's, it's also, I think everything else they say about Iowa is still accurate too. There's just these parallel things going they on. They were just like trying to keep it positive, it felt like, during that stretch of the film, yeah. Yeah. They do. Uh, the one person who doesn't get a Rashomon chance is Kurt's second wife, Jill Kremitz. They, she's mostly I, maybe they it seems like they're really friendly with all of the rest of Kurt's family and loved ones. And then just 
for mm-hmm. one reason or another are not tight with her. But I guess that's kind of the way it goes with this kind of thing. Yeah, she is alive. Oh, <laughs> they could have got her. Check. Yeah, she they is alive. They could have got so, her, yeah. but, but no. <laughs> yeah, I, she probably just wasn't interested. One has to imagine. You imagine yeah. that Whitey wasn't like, ah, let's just skip her. <laughs> so she probably just said no. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and yeah, and for, and from other letters and other research, it also seems like that marriage ended negatively. Like they were together mm-hmm. till the end of Vonnegut's life, but it was fraught and difficult. So that right. that was probably part of it too. But yeah, so the, uh, th- those are uh, some things about the movie, and also just sad things about Kervonnegut, I guess. But we <laughs> we have more to talk about. Let's get into the next segment here called the meat. Chopity chop, chop fresh. Chop. Chapity chop. Sound butcher butcher. <laughs> Abattoir. You folks know the meat. We get into big questions, and we got a few of them here about the the film. First one I was thinking about talking about is what do we think of just like movie adaptations of Vonnegut in general? Because we've talked about the big ones before, but the overall practice of it, how does it feel? Not good, Alex. I don't think, <laughs> considering that I firmly believe these to be some of the finest works of literature ever to come out of the English language. Um, not good enough. Yeah. Mother Night's good. Oh, like since we're talking Whitey, it's good. Slaughterhouse five also good. I still think the books are far, far better and it would be cool to see a film adaptation where you walked out going, wow, that really did justice to Slaughterhouse five. Wow. I can't even believe it. And that's the difficulty of it, right? Is Slaughterhouse Five and Vonnegut's style generally is so personal and intimate and uh, based in the realm of thought more than imagery uh, that I don't, it's, it would take a filmmaker who's equally visionary and equally brilliant, I think, to do justice to books that brilliant for film. And so I find that the movies basically either have a narrator who quotes Vonnegut word for word, or they strip out Vonnegut's unique style in favor of just depicting the actual events that you would see if you were watching, <laughs> you know, which I, <laughs> it makes total sense cause it's a movie, but I still, I've seen films that are less, that are less literal and, you know, films that are more abstract and more impressionistic. And I think if we got like, let's say if Kubrick had ever decided to do a Vonnegut novel. I think there still is a perfect Vonnegut movie out there that doesn't exist yet. I'd like to see better ones. I, I agree with all that. Yeah. Especially I have come out of, I think two of them, including Whitey's mother night thinking Mm -hmm. like that and the, the 1972 slaughterhouse five movie by George Roy Hill. Those two, both times I was like, they really, tried their best and are very skilled at movies and and they really translated as much of the book as possible to the screen and i don't want to see it again like i i can i'll just read the book if i want to re-experience the story and maybe it's because i'm such a vonnegut nut that's an impossible mountain of giving them to climb but but i yeah that's like no, I mean, nobody's I... made a movie i want to see again of vonnegut's work I can't tell you what that would be like because it would have to be so surprising and inventive that it gave me the same feeling reading Vonnegut does where I go, whoa, I've never experienced anything like this. And I, yeah, yeah, in all those cases, it's like, yep, that was a movie version of that. Uh, (laughs) They know how to make a normal movie, but Vonnegut's not a normal writer. He's the greatest author of all time. So uh, Yeah. yeah, I think we still owe him a really, really good film adaptation that blows everyone away. I'd love to see that happen. 
Yeah, really. And Bruce and Willis other... is not. <laughs> Bruce Willis is just not who you go to for Breakfast of Champions. I'm sorry. That one was a mess. Yeah, and I was about to say, like, when the Vonnegut movie isn't perfectly faithful and done with enormous love, it usually stinks, like the Breakfast of yeah. Champions movie. So right. it's it's a difficult tightrope. Like, <laughs> you also fall off sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think your notes are correct. We weren't able to see the one based on Slapstick because it is not in print. Yeah, there's yeah the the there's basically four like major movies of it. There's Slaughterhouse Five in '72, Mother Night in '96, Breakfast of Champions in '99, and then in 1984 there was a movie called Slapstick of Another Kind with Madeline Kahn and Marty Feldman and Jerry Lewis, but it's apparently it's completely out of print, partly because it's awful. Apparently, it's very bad. So <laughs> hmm. even though it has a great cast, it's just like. I think I saw one clip of a trailer and it looked pretty tough to watch. Cat's Cradle could be very good in film form. That's he has so many bangers, like you said, yeah. and many of them have not. There's also a bunch of short films and some like public television versions and things that are out there too of various stories. But there are a lot of key Vonnegut books and stories that have just not been attempted yet. There's a lot of room to try. Harrison Bergeron's been done, yeah. But and another question that came to mind for me is like, is a documentary about Kurt more ideal than other kinds of movies, like scripted movies and stagings of his stuff? Because you just get him if you do a documentary. It's great. Yeah. Is that so you say it's great? Is that where you lean? You think it is the ideal film form? Yeah, I think you the only limitation is there's just a finite amount of following him around and seeing him even as much footage as wide he has. But like, I don't want to close the door on the scripted ones and the new adaptations and things. I just, right. I found a documentary of him really effective. And also it was really exciting to see how good of a performer he was. There's a lot of clips of his lectures and speeches and he's killer up there. It's great. He's a true storyteller. The ideal form of Vonnegut might be Vonnegut performing his own material live. Like that yeah. may be the best possible way to experience the work. Cause yeah, he's a great orator. Yeah, like those like those Mark Twain shows people have done where they just mm -hmm. pretend to Hell be Mark Twain. Like they, around, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they don't do like a stage play of Huck and Jim on the river. They just do Mark Twain doing stuff. <laughs> well, give us, I don't know, another 20 years. Let us go gray. Hey. Start smoking. You be Vonnegut <laughs> 1, I'll be Vonnegut 2. We'll do like a Gallagher thing and we'll both tour different regions. <laughs> Doing Vonnegut quotes. That'd be great. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> or here, here's the, I, I'm just thinking of this now, like one of us is Vonnegut, one of us is Trout. We change roles each night. <gasps> oh, like an Andy Kaufman, uh, what's his name thing? The rude guy he would play. I know yeah. people listening are screaming the name, but yeah, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Kilgore Kaufman. Yeah, that was his mm -hmm. name. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Something like that. Like I, I don't wonder this to like say nobody should do a Vonnegut movie movie anymore. But right. I really like this version of seeing him in a film. Mm -hmm. It's great. Yeah, I'd love almost like that Beatles Get Back document. I, I would love, you know, four, <laughs> four to six uncut hours of Kurt just walking around, farting around, saying stuff, like mumbling stuff to himself. And you go, man, the stuff he mumbles is more brilliant than anything I thought of this week. Because <laughs> it is, even towards the end of his life, he would just... Facts, Whitey, basically tweets 
<laughs> he would think oh, of yeah. one-liners and just fax them to Robert Whitey. What do you think of this? <laughs> great. St- and it, and they're all great. That too, like he's such a visual artist within being an author and on top of it that, yeah, in the documentary, you just get to see a bunch of pages of it. You, you can Google a lot of that too, but it's it's neat to see him just rifling through these dope word art things that Kurt Vonnegut would fax him. <laughs> really neat. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, and also uh, another thing I was thinking about for this is, you know, just we already talked about it some, but how do we feel about Whitey being in the story? I, th- I think your very granular critique of it is right, that it's like sometimes it's a little over parallel. But, uh, you know, then we, we kind of get this trade off of like, do we do that or do we do just like a straight PBS documentary by a third, like a omniscient voice about Vonnegut? There's a lot of ways to do it, I guess. There are, and I think even though I knocked it, this is a very solid way to do it, especially because he can back it up. He really was friends with the man for 40 years. Yeah, I would not remove that interweaving aspect in order to address the thing I said earlier. I still think on the whole, it was a good choice. I endorse the documentary, and I endorse Whitey being a part of it. I just thought towards the end, it kind of, I feel like because he started that way, he felt like he had to finish that way, and some of the paralleling just feels like you're doing it as a matter of course it doesn't really mean anything but the idea Hmm. of paralleling yourself and having the creation of the documentary be part of the documentary come on that's classic a classic Vonnegut trick so it's sort of doing honor to his bag of tricks and I think it works overall despite thinking it's a meh (laughs) (laughs) in some facets yeah no I I completely agree I think it like gives you the best movie and it's feature not a bug that there's just some over over parallel over sharing of himself in it yeah like it's it's you that's that ends it ended up being the story and so he told it like great but not a bad move at all yeah and yeah only other thing really thinking about for the meat is are there other ideal vonnegut documentaries or scripted movies or like i feel like seeing this much of his life and this much of what vonnegut did as a performer opened my mind a little bit in terms of like what the possibilities are for Vonnegut cinema, Vonnegut film. I'd love to see a Vonnegut yogurt, a Vonnegut uh, (laughs) lamp. No, uh, as, as we've said, I think a long form documentary series with no narrator where you're just watching uncut footage of Vonnegut. I mean, I would like that, but I'm pretty intensely into Vonnegut. Uh, I also, uh, like we just jokingly said, but I think it's true. Some kind the stage. I really loved the Sirens of Titan play we got to see that the aforementioned Sirens of Titan play. I could see more more things done in stagecraft because stage tends to be abstract and the audience is more accepting of that more easily. Uh, yeah. You're already looking at a big black space and imagining things in it. Um, so I I feel like. There, sh- there could be a real revival of Vonnegut work done for the stage. And he obviously really respected the theater. He wrote several plays and worked hard to put those plays on, despite them usually flopping. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I'd love to see more stage work. I would not mind Vonnegut imitators <laughs> touring the country. I'd buy tickets and go to that. Absolutely. And, of cool. course, as we said... I would love to see the best Vonnegut movie ever, but I can't even imagine what it would look like because it would have to blow me away. And I don't know if I could imagine what would blow me away, I'd make it. It would have to be something better than me, you know? 
Yeah, that Michael Swayam Sirens of Titan movie is still a yeah. goal. Would be great. Absolutely. Well, that's yeah. if I ever get a big break in Hollywood, that's immediately what I'll turn and pour it all into Sirens of Titan adaptation. But yeah, there you time go. will tell. Like the other, it's I'm just translating it directly from this documentary, but like the animated sequences rendering Breakfast of Champions, like it. It's the least creative idea for that in the world, but like an animated Breakfast of Champions movie would yeah, not probably at all. be That's really good. Very interesting. Yeah. Robert Whitey could probably make it. Like, great, cool. Yeah. Animated. There's there's so many drawings in that book, and it's so much of like a long view of American history and all kinds of jumping around. I, you know, animating it would make sense and might be really neat. And someone in the film says, and it's true, I think, Vonnegut's one of the only authors who ended up becoming an illustrator painter which authors often do dabble in but he's one of the only ones where his paintings actually feel like the way he writes feels they're very consistent they give you kind of the same vibe that his writing does and uh even though that's indefatigable and totally subjective i agree i agree that when i look at his (laughs) art it feels like his books feel um so Yeah. yeah a feature length animated adaptation of a Vonnegut book done in the style of his art would be very cool. I would love that. That's a great idea. Yeah. I think it could be amazing. And so please, please someone do it. Someone it sounds good do to that. Me. Take yeah. the audiobook of Vonnegut reading his own material and just animate that whole thing, man. Right. Like a four and a half hour movie. That's just him reading cat's cradle to you from beginning to end, completely animated. That would be phenomenal. Yeah, and you could collage stuff if you need to, and mm-hmm. yeah, it'd be, yeah. There's so many ways to visually, cinematically do him besides making Bruce Willis pretend to be Dwayne Hoover. Like, there's so many ways to do this, <laughs> <laughs> so let's do it. <laughs> Good idea, Alex. Man, well, I think I think we can get into a next segment here, and there aren't a ton left, but the next segment is Robert B. Y. Degrades. I'm sure everyone understands what this is. Uh, it's just, we're much like we did with the graphic novel by Ryan North and Albert Montes. We're, we're just grading work that is not by Vonnegut himself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, I've got some outside reviews here too, because a lot of different people have had takes on this 2021 documentary. Oh, should we start with ours? Or are you going to spill the beans um, on what other people think? What do you think? Let's do theirs. Then we'll do ours. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This, uh, one review, I just grabbed the most interesting reviews I could find one by Matt Zoller sites for rogerebert.com and rogerebert.com has a ton of reviews. It's really good. But, uh, he gave it three out of four stars and he said, it's messy in the way that wakes for dear friends are messy. There is nevertheless something to be said for a documentary that tries to do something different and perhaps impossible, even if it doesn't quite get there. The devotion Whitey displays toward Vonnegut throughout the second half of the writer's life is as inspiring as Vonnegut's own high points as a human being. We should all be lucky enough to have a friend who will tell our story, end quote. Mm-hmm. Owen Gleiberman for Variety. The, the rest of the reviews, they didn't give a rating, so no grades, but Owen Gleiberman describes it as two documentaries at once and says that it's a worthy portrait, but the filmmaker should have left himself out of it. And then David Biancully for NPR he describes the structure of the documentary as being like the book Slaughterhouse-Five in a good way. Also says that it's faithful to the spirit of Vonnegut and it has its own story to tell too. And its climax, which does come at the end, is very unexpected, quite emotional, and quite lovely. When it was over, my first thought was, if this isn't nice, what is? Is what David Biancully says. And last one is Michael Rechtschaffen in the LA Times. 
He said it's remarkable and gorgeously rendered and unexpectedly moving. Said it's time most rewardingly spent. Just totally glowing review from the LA Times. And I don't know. These, From what I could tell, these seem to add up to a pretty good summary of the overall critical consensus on it. It's really strong and some people vary on some of the techniques and the Whitey stuff. You, yeah, I didn't... I think Messi's going too far. It was pretty straightforward and structured in a very understandable way to me. But uh, I guess that's because as soon as he started doing the thing, I was like, ah, like Slaughterhouse-Five, I get it. You're going to be doing this thing. (laughs) And that structure is very clear to me at this point in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I also, one thing that jumped out to me is like at the start of the documentary, Robert Whitey is like, Look out, folks, because I was trying to make a Vonnegut doc and my story bled in. I can't believe it. What a what a wild thing happened. Mm-hmm. And then most of it's like pretty just straightforward Kurt Vonnegut story. Like there's there's less YD than maybe we're making it sound like just because that jumps out to us. But like yeah. whole huge chunks of this are a very straightforward Kurt Vonnegut biography, like straight down the middle. Yeah, I think reviewers have to much as we just did. <laughs> You got to, you know, you're going through a granularly, so you you notice everything. So it's there to notice. So we're going to sort of zoom in on it and be like, ah, he put himself on camera. Not all documentarians do that. Ah, he interviewed himself multiple times. That's notable. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm just short of Matt Zoller. I think I don't think messy is the right word. I think uh, it's a choice. It's a choice and it's choice. Yeah medium loud it's not even it's not overwhelming (laughs) you still watch the doc it's primarily just vonnegut information it's just like a little flourish yeah yeah totally and i guess we could do our our letter grades sure i'll go i think i i think this is fully an a minus and i think it's it's similar similarly to the graphic novel where like this is a like the graphic novel of Slaughterhouse Five is about the best I could imagine that, and it's simply not the novel. And this is mm-hmm. this is about the best Vonnegut documentary I can imagine, and it's simply not a Vonnegut adaptation or documentary that has like exploded my brain into a million pieces. Right, it's really well done and done with like tremendous and very apparent amounts of love, on on top of the craft. I'm right there with you, Alex. I'm giving it a B plus. Yeah. Mainly because of the credits. I was actually annoyed by the credits thing. At the point where he's just comparing home footage of himself with home footage of Vonnegut. I'm like, what are you trying to say? You're not Vonnegut, man. No one's Vonnegut. Come on. Um, (laughs) I would have gone A minus, but literally just that credits reel kind of ticked me off a little tiny bit. Brought it down to a B plus, but uh, very strong. Makes sense. Yeah. I I mean... I could see a very bad Vonnegut documentary easily. Like I can imagine it so clearly. And luckily this was not that, not by a long shot. Oh yeah. Whitey's good at what he does. Especially like there's that through line in Vonnegut's life and work of critics shitting on him. Mm -hmm. And like if somebody who doesn't think Vonnegut is good made a documentary, that's, that would be unwatchable to me. I think Mm -hmm. like even it's not that I couldn't receive their criticisms. It would just be like so far off base, you know, a boy, oh boy. (laughs) We would just not cover it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) When uh, just a few more segments left, the next one is related reading. Flip, 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 flip. But uh, yeah, this is where we plug in things that jump out to us as related that you might enjoy if you enjoy this documentary. Uh, And I have two here and it looks like you have three. 
Yeah, I started with six, but I narrowed it down because um, I, I feel like yeah. after our discussion, I, I have a stronger sense of what resonates with what. I went with other documentaries. I think you went with books, and that's fine. We're both doing yeah. a good job. Um, but the first documentary I'll shout out is called Life Itself. Uh, it's the documentary about the life of Roger Ebert. We mentioned a yeah. review from RogerEbert.com. I love Roger Ebert, and... I never could have guessed that his life was so fascinating. Also, as a recovering alcoholic, he was a pretty severe alcoholic, and they go they go straight into that, and they don't shy away. And um, the sheer delight of it, though, and the reason I think people listening should absolutely watch it tonight, is the footage of him and Siskel absolutely hating each other's guts. And if you want, you can just find this on YouTube, <laughs> this part. No way. It's gone viral, but... Behind the scenes footage of them recording Roger, uh, uh, Siskel and Ebert at the movies where they are with the wit of like the Algonquin round table, just demolishing each other, just saying the <laughs> cruelest, most biting things. It's a lot like the scenes where Vonnegut goes, ah, fuck off. Uh, like just seeing them be really mean to each other is endlessly hilarious. <laughs> Great I movie for that. Yeah, and also very uplifting, inspirational if you think that, um, you know, pop culture analysis is a valid art form, which I hope you do because you're listening to this. Roger Ebert yeah. always meant a lot to me in that department. He was a reviewer who actually brought additional meaning and understanding to the subject. He didn't just go, it's worth, yeah, it's worth your ticket money. There were a lot of explosions. Uh, you know, he had things to say, and I think that always elevates the act of art criticism. Uh, so yeah, if you're a Roger Ebert head, check out Life Itself if you haven't already. That sounds amazing. It's I, quite good. I have many reasons I want to watch it. And one is that growing up outside Chicago, I thought Siskel and Ebert were like just local Chicago media dudes until I mm. learned later that they were very meaningful they, to everybody. <laughs> my, I had split custody, only saw my dad on the weekends. He'd take us to a movie every Friday night. Literally, Roger Ebert determined what I did with my father because <laughs> wow. he was like, whatever Ebert gives a thumbs up. He agreed with Ebert and he hated Siskel. That's what we're going <laughs> to see as a family this Friday night. So, yeah, he dictated oh. a large chunk of my childhood. I'm glad such a good critic got that role. Mm -hmm. That's good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Man, well, I did. I had I had one documentary, but it is. Oh, OK. It. it uh uh, similar to this film, the story kind of became a surprise, I think. It's a story called Meeting People is Easy, is the documentary. Uh, and it was directed by a guy named Grant Gee. I haven't seen any of his other stuff. But it's his documentary about Radiohead. And oh, cool. What, what, he did, what they were doing going in was Radiohead had, was like a little famous. They, they were only two albums into their career. The second one is The Benz, which is somewhat well-known. And so the idea was, we'll release our third album, and then we'll just do a tour documentary of the tour after that. But the third album is OK Computer, which changed everything for them. Is yeah. globally earth shaking. And so mm -hmm. you're seeing this documentary of them like begin to be crushed by fame, as they as right. the, and also like by the humongousness of what they've accomplished and everything. And it's a really amazing concert tour documentary because you can see them be basically have personalities that are not aligned with what is happening around them because of their art. It's, it's really astonishing. We need a resurgence of Radiohead appreciation. I feel like they're not 
yeah discussed as n- enough as much as they still deserve to this day <laughs> yeah i can't wait to check that out that sounds great yeah i i like and i i'm not even like a huge radiohead fan i just like them and don't think about them that much but the movie is amazing and and the the music's amazing but in that way you're describing where we like I think don't fully appreciate them. I'm like, yeah, of course they have four or five albums that helped change music. Sure. Whatever. (laughs) Oh yeah. All the way through in rainbows. I am completely on board with calling their albums genius, you know, heartbreaking works of staggering genius or whatever. I really think they had something. (laughs) Uh, I I've got three documentaries. My second one, uh, I'm going to switch the order here. I'm going to call shout out too funny to fail, which I think you can watch on, Yeah, it's on Hulu and YouTube, but it's the documentary about the making of and immediate cancellation of the Dana Carvey show, which... Oh, I've seen that. Yeah. ...was a fabulously funny, truly like hilarious sketch comedy show that just immediately flopped and failed incredibly hard for a number of concrete reasons, and it's fascinating (laughs) as a creative person to watch... All these people, the superstars of comedy, you're Steve Carell and Steve Colbert and Robert Smigel and all these people who started there, uh, make a show that was supposed to be, well, this can't fail. This is all the greatest comedy minds alive right now. And indeed, some of the sketches are untouchably hilarious. uh, And yet it goes into all the ins and outs of why three episodes aired three more never aired and they just shut it down and like how it failed so hard that it, you know, sent Dana Carvey out of the public consciousness for quite a while, uh, along with some other mitigating factors, but really interesting, especially if you're into comedy, like I think it's the kind of documentary Kurt himself would have been interested in or have been relevant (laughs) to his interests. Yeah. I've seen it. It's a perfect laughing off abysmal failure, trying really hard, failing abysmally (laughs) and going, well, what can you do? You know, (laughs) that one, is that the one where they watch like a promo that the network made for the show? And it's like a super serious home improvement promo. And then, and also Dana Carvey. And it's like, uh, tonight on home improvement, uh, JD, I forget the kids' names, the characters' names in that, but um, too, Jonathan yeah. Taylor Thomas gets caught with drugs, and it's this very serious thing. And they're like, and then the Dana Carvey show, and the first sketch they performed was Dana Carvey pretending to be Bill Clinton with six realistic uh, pig teats on his yeah. chest, breastfeeding yeah. members of Congress. And you're like, the audiences <laughs> for these two things are not the same. You are not going to like maintain your television viewing audience. And sure enough, they got piles and piles of hate mail and it's just a delightful mess. <laughs> really funny to watch that show implode. Yeah. Uh, amazing pick. Really, really good. And yeah, my, my only other pick was, it's a book I mentioned. It's called the brothers Vonnegut. It's by ginger strand. It's a nonfiction book about, really all of Vonnegut's life, but especially as you expect from the title, his brother Bernard, and then as you might not expect from the title, his wife, Jane. And it's about kind of how the author Kurt Vonnegut happens really influenced by those two other people because Bernard uh, keeps them afloat with a job and the job is PR for GE. And then Vonnegut basically makes his decisions to get into writing through that and his first novel player piano through that. Uh, and then a lot of less well-known stuff about Jane, like really propping up his 
everything from confidence to schedule to everything else so he could possibly do it. It's it's amazing. And you can't can't harp enough on the fact that Bernard was a genius of equal magnitude who achieved an equal amount of fame in the sciences. Like yeah. what he accomplished with cloud seeding and stuff was and is considered, you know, by people in that field. Oh yeah, he's also an untouchable genius. Like he was a titan in his industry. Yeah, just amazing that yeah. that both those sons came out of that family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, last but not least, hopefully, I was just intellectually guilted by my brother into watching a very heady documentary series. <laughs> Speaking from the of BBC. brothers, right? Jeez, Louise. Yeah, that's right. That you can find <laughs> you can find the whole thing on YouTube. I highly recommend checking it out, especially if you saw the movie Don't Look Up. And you're like, ah, yes, haha, it is that way. I wonder why it's that way. Like, I wonder why a big chunk of the population is that way. Uh, the Century of the Self is what it's called. And it's a BBC cool. series that sort of tracks, uh, again, family members who both achieve fame, but Sigmund Freud and his nephew or something. I forget his first name, so I'm going to call him Bernard Freud because he's analogous <laughs> to the Vonnegut family guy. But um, Sigmund, of course, popularizing psychotherapy and then his nephew taking that and applying it to marketing and inventing things like focus groups, uh, the idea of expressing yourself by buying seasonal products, the idea of planned obsolescence, the idea of advertising by playing on people's subconscious emotions, like making you fear that you won't be popular if you don't buy X. And then sort of how that whole system was co-opted by big industry, of course, which it was intended to be, but then also the political parties and how that has led to the reality in which we find ourselves where people curate their own reality and believe whatever they want and say fake news about anything they don't want to believe and not wearing a mask because there's a pandemic has become somehow an expression of your identity, even though it used to just be a public health issue. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, very, very fascinating, very on point. Uh, and it's like the not funny side of Vonnegut, right? I think it's talking about a lot of the things that Vonnegut is bemoaning and, and pointing out the ludicrousness of when he actually gets sad or cynical mm. or says, you know, humans really suck. Society sucks. Uh, this was a very illuminating documentary about why and how we got there and exactly how much society has been compromised and corrupted. That's amazing. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's good, though. Yeah, four-hour, four-part miniseries. Yeah, I did, I did quick Googling because I want to see it, and it looks like it's Freud, and then uh, Edward Bernays is the other guy. The, Thank you. The PR That's and right. marketing person. Mm -hmm. And yeah, oh, my God. Yeah, because... Uh, yeah, Architects I, of modern society in many ways. And this... I'm Now I'm remembering how much this documentary focuses on how Vonnegut talked about loneliness, which is always powerful. But like, there's one part of the doc where I think it's John Irving talks about visiting old Vonnegut at his house by himself. Mm -hmm. And Vonnegut was just on the porch and had clearly been there all morning because of how many cigarette butts were there. But Vonnegut would just be like, oh, no, I just got out here. No, I wasn't waiting around for someone to come talk to me, you know, like. Yeah, that's what I love about Slapstick, because that's one where he really explores the extended family idea. And I think in a subtle way, that was just as core to his oeuvre as the Slaughterhouse-Five unstuck in time idea was the idea of, yeah. he says in this documentary, find an extended family, whoever they may be. They don't even have to be high-grade people. 
just don't be alone. Just connect yourselves to other people. You'll have a better time of it. Yeah. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Yeah. Man. Oh, these are cool. Well, uh, uh, there's just one more segment for this episode. It is a quick Vonnegut news. See, that one never changes. <laughs> That's the Since one. the dawn of time, that is the sound of news. The ironclad segment intro of the show. It's how Cody's Shody starts. It's uh, that sound effect is gets around, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's lasted through technological changes. It's great, mm-hmm. and it's very short because the main thing to say, well, other than like happy 2022, but now that Ooh. we're in 2022, the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library they're doing their annual Night of Vonnegut fundraiser on April 10th of 2022, and they're in Indianapolis. They're a great org. Uh, and then we'll we may have other Vonnegut news to share on the other episode of this we're going to do. But the other news is that Kurt Vonnegut's hundredth birthday is November eleventh of this year. Wow! He was born in nineteen twenty-two. Nice. And so, were he still around, he'd be turning a hundred. Very cool. That's about yeah. it. Yeah, pretty straightforward. And we'll and then programming note: we'll be back with the Writers' Crusade by Tom Roston in uh, a few weeks or more. I'm not exactly sure how soon, but we'll, we're working yeah. on it can't wait yeah reading's hard so it'll take a bit (laughs) (laughs) that's why we do this show right yeah we've been lounging around watching a movie for the first time and it's uh really weakened us spoiled me on (laughs) yeah (laughs) but uh i'm and i yeah i'm really delighted this documentary exists so and thank you all for the the tip and the suggestion of digging into it and seeing this and and you know hope you enjoy it if you've seen it or are going to see it absolutely definitely recommended watch yeah. thank you all for listening always a pleasure yeah vonnegutmovie.com for the doc and if this isn't nice what is <laughs> <laughs>